Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. And we're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Well, welcome, everybody, to Election Shock Therapy here at Bethel University. Uh, glad to be joining you again. My name is Chris Moore, and I'm a professor of political science. And I am Sam Mulberry. I teach in the history department. Andy Bramson, also in political science. And Mitchell Crum, I'm also in political science. And before we kick off today with uh, a number of issues, we're going to be talking about some news of the week, um, voters and voter behavior. Uh, and I think, we uh, should ta- I think we should talk about the fact that I can interrupt you right now. Um, oh, yeah. Au- we're in kind of a new studio. We're in the same space, but now we have everybody on their own mic. So if you yes. were frustrated by the handing the mics around, I think... If you thought there was this, this weird pause between everyone talking where it was sort of like a... Um, it's we because, were we, were, it's because we were resisting the urge to act like a barbershop quartet and all huddle around. I know, I was going to feel, but now I feel like we should harmonize or something. You don't want to hear me harmonize. No. <laughs> but we'll just say it's a possibility, so hang on, because you never know. You never know. Maybe you should come up with a song for Mitchell and I to sing every time you talk, Sam. We could debut that next week. Or something. I do need so, entrance music. Sort of like his backing Ooh, okay. vocals. Dum, dum, dum. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, a um, couple announcements first. Just um, We were only a few episodes into our podcast, and yet we're going to do a live show. Uh, if you're Ooh. in the uh, Minneapolis area and you want to join us, uh, we'll be uh, at 1010 on Tuesday, uh, the, September 20th. We're going to be in the Bethel University Library. Uh, we're going to be talking about civility and faith in politics. And are tickets still available for Tickets that? are still available, but they're going fast. Okay. And um, Can I use SeatGeek? You cannot use okay. SeatGeek. <laughs> we are not You can cool. just show up at the library and they'll put up an extra chair if you want to come. Yes, they have, um, they have extra chairs. And usually free coffee, too. So. Usually coffee and something, usually some kind of baked good. So um, come check that out um, if you want to. We're going to take questions from the audience as well. Um, also, if you want to get in touch with us, uh, as some people have already done, uh, you can email us at electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. You can send questions to us. We'd like to respond to those. And um, also, uh, we're probably going to be hosting or at least uh, uh, being present at an, at an election watch party uh, for election night. Um, I don't know if we'll be recording that live. Maybe we'll set something up for that. We're going to be recording something there. But we'll, I we'll, have some ideas. All right. Ooh. Um, and uh, lastly, uh, if you have the time and have a minute, please uh, rate us on iTunes. Give us a five-star rating, if you would, please. And subscribe. That helps other people find us, and we'd, love, we'd really appreciate that. So, gentlemen, do you know what tomorrow is? I know what tomorrow is. I know what tomorrow is. I think I know what tomorrow is. But do you all know who tomorrow? Tomorrow is Constitution, Constitution Day. Day. Yes, and um, I, I'm resisting the urge to dress up as, uh, <laughs> as as one of my favorite founding fathers for Constitution Day. Well, please do. You do okay, I'm re- really it's Ben Franklin, right? Is that your thing? Sure, that'd be good. Hamilton? I'd like to see you as Ben Franklin. Hamilton's so Hamilton's so over now, right? I really want to see your hair as Ben Franklin. Yeah, <laughs> is, is there is there like a secret Santa esque game we play on Constitution Day? Like, but it's like secret John Adams or something that we can play. Oh, secret John Adams Day? <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, like that's the activity you do on Constitution Day. I'm not sure what you secretly like give to people or something. I presume, probably rights. I presume um, rights. Yes, amendments. There you go. <laughs> Well, yep. speaking of which, what what, uh, um, what is your favorite amendment? Do you guys have a you're all political scientist and a historian here? Do we have a favorite amendment? 
Uh, well, when I was thinking about the amendments, uh, I was thinking about uh, the 18th, which of course gave, gave us prohibition. That's your and, favorite? <laughs> yeah, I would, I would say, I would, I would say, I would say, as a good, as a good uh, child of my grandmother, I, I have to say that that was one of my one of my favorites. There, uh, my grandmother actually fought to keep my hometown dry. Okay. Um, and then she was a grocery store. She, she worked at a grocery store for a little while, and she would actually try you to grew convince. Up in a college town, right? yeah, it's a college town, and so okay. she and so she's at this grocery store in this town that's suddenly not dry after she fought um, to to keep it that way. And so she would try to convince the college students not to buy alcohol. So they would be there <laughs> buying the alcohol, and she'd be telling them like, "You don't want this. This sort is going to make your life better." Baleful looks from the grocery store yeah. clerk, that sort of thing. Okay. Yeah, and so and so she would, you know, she would basically be trying to talk them out of it the whole time. And um, so essentially, so I guess I guess as a good uh, descendant of hers, I I have to say that prohibition um, is the is was 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 the best. Those were the good times. <laughs> As someone who was born in South Carolina, I have to go with the Tenth Amendment, that all power is not given to the national government or reserved for the states. Um, we were big fans of the Tenth Amendment down in South Carolina, uh, which is, you know, uh, what some of the basis for us leaving the Union first back in 1860. Um, so, yeah, I'll go with number 10. All right. Chris, do you have a favorite? I, I, I want to go with quartering and housing of soldiers. Um, which is a great amendment. You, you like that? Yeah. 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 Um, but uh, how could you go wrong with the Bill of, How could you go wrong with the First Amendment? Freedom of speech, freedom of religion. It's a pretty solid one. Yeah. They, they came out strong. Yeah. If I'm doing a mixtape of amendments, that's what I'm going to start with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. How yeah. about you, Sam? Uh, I, I don't mean this as a jokey answer, but it's the 28th Amendment. Wait, what? Exactly. Because there isn't a 28th Amendment, because that would be the next one, correct? Right, sure. Yeah, so so it's the idea that we're not done. The idea that, mm. that the Constitution mm. is a living document, um, which means we acknowledge it's not a perfect document. I think that's super cool, because... Um, the the fact that that right away we we amended it, you know, like mm-hmm. right out of the gate, like that's pretty cool. So so now I will retract that statement if the twenty eighth amendment is abhorrent, and then I would say it's the twenty ninth <laughs> amendment. It's the idea that it's the idea that there's more to come. All right, all right. I'm trying to, now I'm trying to think what the what an abhorrent amendment would be, but you're right that that, that takes my mind to some dark We could places. repeal some positive amendments, and let's, that would let's be pretty not. abhorrent. <laughs> okay, good point. Like Mitchell's grandmother's favorite amendment. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Restart prohibition. <laughs> well, I meant that one got hey, repealed. It, it, so. He she couldn't keep his town or her town dry, but if it could keep my basement dry, I would be happy with that. <laughs> that would be Wait, a good you have amendment. a speakeasy in your basement? <laughs> no, we have water in our basement. Oh, though, that's a problem. So, yeah, <laughs> a different kind of dry. <laughs> All right. Well, um, I don't have a good transition for this, but uh, I guess if you hang around water long enough, you know what you might get? You might get pneumonia. Oh, there you go. (laughs) Good. That worked. Well played. I was going to say mosquitoes, but. (laughs) Oh, malaria. (laughs) (laughs) Here's what I can say. I'm fairly certain that neither of our our presidential candidates have malaria. (laughs) Allegedly, Uh, they don't have it, though, just to be safe. (laughs) But who's got pneumonia? Hillary Clinton. Is this a problem, Andy? Um, no. I mean, pneumonia itself does not seem like a problem. It seems like a mild case of pneumonia, and I'm not a, that kind of doctor, but uh, of course, <laughs> of antibiotics, and she should be in good shape. So it's not a problem there, and I don't really think it's a concern for her health long term as far as her ability to be president. What I think is a concern is the way that she and her um, campaign handled this, which is that they were, you know, a short narration of events, if any of our listeners are not familiar, is that they found out on Friday that she had pneumonia after mm-hmm. she had some coughing fits. They did not disclose this. On Saturday, she goes to um, the 9-11 um, memorial service, um, the day before 9-11, actually, and she faints. Um, and they say it was because she was overheated and dehydrated right. in, you know, 80-degree weather, which is a little weird. Um, and then on Sunday, they finally admit 
oh, by the way, we found out on Friday that she has pneumonia. And it's that pattern of secrecy that I think really worries people about the Clintons. It's just this idea that they're not very transparent, but Why they're always trying to hide something. you tell somebody you have pneumonia? Yeah, especially it's not like it's it's not like you have sort of serious a serious disease, right? You have a disease that a lot of Americans get and that you take a course of treatment and it gets better, especially for somebody who's basically pretty healthy. And Hillary seems like a, a fairly healthy 68-year-old woman, right? So, Although there are rumors uh, that I've heard a few rumors. for over a year now, maybe longer, <laughs> from people on the, on the right that, that she has some serious yeah. chronic illnesses. Yeah. Well, doesn't that then answer the question why you wouldn't disclose that? I mean, if you took if you thought that was so this the problem is this this emboldens the very people right. that she wants to right. undermine uh, by not disclosing it. It seems to it seems to suggest that maybe there's something else worth hiding here right. too. Or, or or you're making the gamble to say let's not make this a news story. So if if it ends up that that this doesn't become a it's, public it's thing no big deal, and the antibiotics out. work, then it's yeah. like right, right. we have avoided a news cycle. So you know, it, so, yeah. So if right. we, we, we have, I'm going to make a couple assumptions here, but and then, um, I'm going to assume that there is nothing more wrong with Hillary Clinton than what some antibiotics and pneumonia can clear that can clear up. Um, uh, but if that's the case, it tells you a little bit about kind of her decision making style, right. the decision to not disclose to something that, that might just go away and be nothing, as opposed to over disclose things uh, that might end up being nothing. Right. Mm-hmm. That, that's that's mm-hmm. at the very least that's something we can learn about here. Here, right. Sure, but 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 if it but but the context matters. The, if if sure. there wasn't, I mean, if there wasn't a um, uh, sort of rumors about her health and and her health leading to her potentially being unfit to be president, right? Then she probably discloses it. That's possibly true. I guess my my thought here is that I mean, you're never going to shut down those kind of rumors, right? The people who are who have for a year have been hammering on the fact that she's got Parkinson's, she's got this, she's got that, right? I mean, they're they're going to keep up that narrative, right? So the way your concern if you're Hillary Clinton is the people in the center, right? The people you need to persuade that to vote for you as a safer option than Donald Trump, mm-hmm. right? You're not going to persuade these people on the sort of hard right um, that, you know, you're okay um, physically or otherwise, right? right. Um, so so then you've got to be concerned about those people in the middle. And what you're concerned there is, I mean, if you just admit like, oh, yeah, I've got a minor issue, right? I've got this pneumonia and I'm taking this. Um, that doesn't probably concern them all that much, even though it does feed that narrative and it does create an unfortunate news cycle. But when you hide it, that seems like a bigger issue. And it plays to the, the biggest concern people have about the Clintons, which is sort of the secrecy. I mean, that, that sort of leads us into this email scandal, which is like, why do they always have to hide things? Why do they always have to kind of right, but, break but, the rules? In a but, sense? but, man, I, I, I apologize for keeping pushing back on this, but the reason it's it's being hidden i think is because this other this other thing exists if that didn't right. exist yeah. you know and so so i think there's the the question of of um i mean how 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 is that as a strategy mm-hmm. to sort of just keep throwing things out and yeah. hoping yeah. something sticks or maybe I mean, maybe that conspiracy is true that there are these bigger these bigger things Seems unlikely. so but I, but i think yeah but i think it's um you know, you you made the comment that well, this tells us something about her that she's the kind of person who doesn't want to disclose. Well, I wouldn't want to disclose in that situation either. Sure, but that's because of the right. context, not because I'm the type of person who doesn't want to disclose that I'm sick. I don't want to disclose that I'm sick if there's already a narrative out there that's saying I don't know, maybe she's sick and maybe that means she's unfit. That's a totally right. different. Right. So right. I'm saying like to right. make a judgment about about like well, this this tells us something about mm-hmm. her. Well. It tells us something about her in that context. But it, I guess the, my, my broader point on that is that it, it fits what we already know about Hillary Clinton, right, which is that she consistently does this. She consistently is trying to sort of, you know, 
not put any more information out there than she absolutely is forced to do, um, and that she is pretty secretive about stuff. And so, which, which is one reason why she chose the Secretary of State to have her own private server, right? I mean, she wanted to be able to control the information. The problem is that's kind of against government regulations, right? Mm-hmm. So it creates a lot of issues. So it, it, I think the bigger concern for her is not this health issue um, well, itself, but it's that it feeds a certain narrative about her. Um, and it, it, in that sense, I mean, like, I, I can totally understand why she did it. I agree with you, Sam. But I also think it was a very unfortunate choice on her part because I think um, it, you know, it basically was a big success for Trump and his people who have been saying, A, she's not healthy, and B, she's, you know, very secretive and sneaky. And she could have shut down one of those narratives by just being transparent about this. But instead, she fed both of them. Right. Uh, now, and, and again, you guys are way, way more informed than I am. But, but from my um – from the the space where I'm watching this election, there it seems like there's also things that um, Trump has has uh, also not disclosed that oh, are yeah, pretty sure, typical things. Sure. So, but but I but so it's it's sort of strange as a strategy mm-hmm. to to sort of push for the, a narrative of this person's very secretive. They don't disclose right. when <laughs> you in pretty high profile ways aren't yeah. disclosing oh, things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that right. seems like less of a story. And why is that? I mean, it's it's definitely a story because I hear that, but but I don't hear it to the degree that yeah. I hear this. Well, it's I mean, I would say it's less of a story because it's been such a story for such a long time, right? I mean, they, the media has been hammering on him for months that you should turn it, you know, give us your tax returns, for example, right? Um, and they, there was just a story yesterday in the Washington Post about how he has been the least transparent presidential candidate, you know, since we've been kind of trying to keep track of these things, right? Mm-hmm. So, so it's the story's out there. It's just that people are kind of bored with it because it's okay. been. I mean, it's been the consistent narrative with Trump, and yeah, I totally agree. I mean, it's it's unfair to say that Hillary Clinton somehow secret, secretive and sneaky, and Trump isn't, right? I mean, but the point is, she needs to, I think, to, to appeal to center voters, she needs to draw a contrast here, not sure. be like, oh, well, that's a wash because I'm being secretive and sneaky, and so is he. I, I mean, I'm asking this more as a strategy from the Trump end. Like, it seems weird to go after, <laughs> because, and again, yeah, I could be I wrong agree. about this, I but agree. wasn't wasn't Trump one of the people who uh-huh. was sort of pushing for? Romney to put out his tax forms, yes, he was. yes, and then and then he like that just seems very weird. Like like I don't know. Maybe this goes he's back being, to he's that, being audited. that the past the, doesn't matter. You know, like I don't know. But, no, I totally agree. I, mean, I totally agree with that. Let me throw two. Other, I, I want to think about how we as the consumers of media interpret these two people too, because I think that matters. I think it matters how voters are watching these two people. Um, I have two thoughts on this. One in relation to how e- the secrecy of each is interpreted. Um, Hillary Clinton um, is compared to Trump and probably uh, is more uh, – well, Hillary Clinton compared to Trump is a more introverted, more self uh, um, self-effacing and quieter person. Um, and she's that way compared to uh, her husband or even to Barack Obama, who himself is somewhat introverted. Um, and I think as a consequence of that, we treat how they disclose things differently. Uh, bec- Trump yeah. is always talking. He's always extroverted. He's always projecting himself abroad. And some of the things he says aren't true. <laughs> uh, but he keeps talking. And so essentially his mm-hmm. defense to the things he says that are false is just a good offense. I'm just going to keep right. throwing more things out there, and there's just more and more things for you to deal with. It's almost like the news media can't catch up with all the things he was saying. But imagine if a quieter, more introverted, less forthcoming person 
just said one of the two of the things that Trump said. It would, they would, it would, it would be the only things we focus on. Mm-hmm. And I think there's mm-hmm. almost a narrative about how these two people yeah. act in relation to kind of how much they're talking to. Mm-hmm. As, as I wonder if Hillary can actually make up ground on this because mm-hmm. as we move into a space where she is going to be more for more in the public eye and speaking more. She has a chance to portray herself as more forthcoming just because she's going to be in the debates. She's going to be giving more press conferences. Mm-hmm. She's already made the step to be giving more press conferences. So I think that's a chance for her to mm-hmm. so, to turn this narrative a little bit. I think part of the thing that's uh, hurting Hillary Clinton on the whole secrecy thing, too, is Bernie Sanders, actually. So yeah. during so during the primary, Sanders was constantly pushing Clinton on the fact that she was being secretive, that she right. wasn't disclosing her Wall Street speeches, things like that. And so Sanders, in some ways, even before Trump, was already uh, pushing Clinton on that narrative. And so I think in some ways, um, you know, the Democratic strategists who were trying to get Sanders to drop out earlier really kind of sensed that this was a danger. And maybe uh, what mm-hmm. we're seeing is they were right, that they, right. you know, that the fact that Sanders um, set this narrative up has really just kind of uh, already gotten that idea in, in, in people's minds that Hillary Clinton isn't transparent. She mm-hmm. doesn't disclose. And now we just, uh, you know, all, all, all Trump has to do is just sort of build on that. He doesn't even mm-hmm. have to sure. sort of lay the foundations or make it respectable or anything like that. He just has to keep repeating what's already in people's minds. Mm-hmm. And fair or not, then that makes it feel very reliable, right? Because she's getting criticized on this from both the right and the left. This is not simply a story that's coming sort of from the alt-right, right? It's mm-hmm. coming from both right and left, mm-hmm. and they're saying the same thing about her. Um, and, I, yeah, I, I think that... Um, yeah, David Axelrod famously last week went after right, her for right. not telling and, people that she had you know, So some of Obama's own advisors have been have been saying that this is a this is a problem for her, mm. right? So, so I, the other uh, facet of this, and, and by the way, I think this all leads me to making a broader point, which is that we are not judging these two candidates by the same standards. Mm-hmm. Whatever standard we should judge them by, we're not applying the same one to both of them. Right. But the other one is here, and as I think is a gendered component to it, too, I think one of the other explanations for why, if you're Hillary Clinton, you'd have more, to your point, Sam, why you'd be disincentivized to want to disclose you have pneumonia, is I think we hold female candidates and female public figures to a different standard than to, than to male ones. Mm-hmm. And I think if Donald Trump had pneumonia um, and still tried to go to some events, you might even get some credit for that. Well, look, he, he, he toughed it out. He sucked it up. He, 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 you know, he, this is Jordan flu game or this something. This is Jordan flu game, yeah. And if a female candidate um, or a female public figure gets sick, well, they're frail. They're weak. Mm-hmm. And I, I wonder if, if she was try- conscious of that and wanting to avoid that perception. You know, we, 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 when we think about other modern famous uh, female heads of state, um, mm-hmm. a number of them were – portrayed or had the narrative of you know they were as tough as a man or tougher than a man kind of thing margaret thatcher the iron lady Mm -hmm. yeah um and i wonder if that's something that hillary clinton is mindful of Mm and in some of her decision making too yeah could be are there other places you see you think you see that show up beyond the because i think the the sort of health and fitness for office thing um is one where we see that that sort of gendered component there. Mm-hmm. Are there other notable places where you where you think that, or any of you think that that? Well, I had a. Um, I'll throw. Uh, I don't. I have no idea whether she's listening or not. But one of my former students, Kelly Copley, wrote a senior seminar paper where she looked at the rhetoric of female heads of state leading into war mm-hmm. compared to male heads of state leading into war, and she it was uh, it wasn't completely conclusive evidence, but she found some evidence that women talked as tough or tougher than men leading into war. And the only reason why that she could point to is that they had to compensate for otherwise for their hmm. gender, um, or at least they perceived they had to do so. And I, I think there's, there's an argument made for that here too uh, with with Hillary Clinton. 
Um, we have already noted in a previous podcast mm-hmm. that she is more hawkish than other members of the Obama administration. She's mm-hmm. more hawkish than Donald Trump is. Um, I'm not saying that she's hawkish because she's a woman, I'm, but uh, that will assist her and perhaps has mm-hmm. assisted mm-hmm. her in getting to this point in the campaign, mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. The, the other thing I think, too, is just going back to the, um, you know, so why why she's being treated differently than than Donald Trump. I mean, I think one thing, too, that the media is probably taking into account, whether consciously or unconsciously, right, is the fact that Trump has been hammering them for you're treating me unfairly. You're always writing attack stories on me. And so when these stories do come up about Hillary, I wonder if there's not this sort of sense of, well, we got to make sure we cover this because we don't want to be like sort of actually feeding his narrative that we're being unfair. Right. So, so then so we have to go after her. So hard. the media's attempt to be right. even handed. They're being yeah. harsher with her. This was the well, knock on Matt Lauer right? last week yeah. when mm-hmm. uh, he had these open forum, these, mm-hmm. these uh, um, uh, forums with both candidates and that the uh, commander in chief, the commander in chief form. Thank right. you. And he, uh, um, Many allege that he asked much harder questions to Clinton than he asked to Trump. Yeah, yeah, and I think, um, yeah, I think that's 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 at least part of what's going on is the sort of like this attempt to compensate. And then the thing is with Trump, as you pointed out, Chris, I mean, you just can't keep track of all the things he says, right? And sure, because he just, I mean, it's just a constant flow, right? So I mean, he's just fact checkers have been trying going wild, trying to keep track of all the things that come out of his mouth, right? So let me ask a more theoretical question here. Um, Obviously, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton have very different uh, backgrounds, very different pedigrees coming into mm-hmm. this can- this or this race. So does Gary Johnson, so does Jill Stein, for that matter, too. Right. Is it a good idea to try to apply the same standards to all candidates in an abstract sense, or should we be applying different standards to different candidates? I think the first question we want to ask is, who's applying these standards? Um, so we might want to ask, you know, mm-hmm. are, we, are we thinking of the public? I mean, does the public is the public expected to sort of have... Um, similar standards and be thinking in those terms because, uh, you know, on the one hand, I think you know that's in in, in some ways that's asking an awful lot of, um, of 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 people to actually even have enough information to be able to think about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we could also think about the media. Are we thinking about the media applying um, the same standards? And in that case, you know, as you have already noted, you know, we're sort of running up against what does journalistic objectivity look like? What does that mean? Does it mean that you are sort of asking the same questions or does it mean that you are sort of evenly presenting both, um, you know, both, both, uh, uh, sides of a story mm-hmm. and, and, uh, yeah. Well, and even if we're saying the public, the public doesn't get their, doesn't get their information. I mean, it's hard to get sort of pure information. So even sure. if we're saying it's the public applying the standards, that's all filtered through how those, how that information is being delivered, what isn't being delivered, what is being delivered, and then what spin is put on that. So, so I think the media has got to be at the core of it anyhow because there really isn't another way unless you're going to actually follow these mm-hmm. people around, yeah. you know. And I, I would argue, I mean, it's, it's fair enough to apply the same standard in the sense that they're all applying for the same job, right? I mean, they all are trying to be our president for the next four years. Okay. Um, so in that sense, we have to— the requirements of that job are quite limited. Uh, they're all of the correct age. They're well, right. They're native-born okay. U.S. Yeah. citizens. If we're just going with the constitutional um, requirements, sure. Well, it's, const- it's going to be Constitution Day. Uh, but, That's true. Uh, That's true. Yeah, but, but in all honesty, I mean, uh, when we, th- we, we have built up around those basic— Mm-hmm. standards, mm-hmm. a whole set of what we think a president should be. Right. But essentially what Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton are presenting are two very different visions of what a president right. should be. So you're saying we need a better job description for the president? <laughs> that would make it easier? <laughs> so, so that's the 20th Amendment. It, is, is a, is a, is a mission job description. Statement. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, how many jobs just say you need to be 35 and a citizen? Like, it's got to be more, right? I'm guessing it's a few more than just <laughs> yeah, president. Yeah. Yeah. And 14 years living in the U.S. Right, right, right. 
<laughs> okay, so and this is hard because we're in the midst of an election cycle right now, so we're deeply colored by the people who are running and have run rec- and have right. run recent elections. But if you could say there's one thing a candidate ought to be in addition to 35 and a native born U.S. citizen, uh, what would it be? I mean, I would argue for some substantive experience in government. Okay, but, so previous governmental um, experience. Yeah, I don't. I really don't see this as a starting a starter job. And I really, and when I say substantive <laughs> experience, I mean I. I had I've had concerns on both you know both sides of the aisle with previous presidential candidates. So people like you know Ted Cruz, um, Marco Rubio, uh, Barack Obama, for that matter, right? Is people who hadn't accomplished something of substance. So I mean, being in government is one thing; accomplishing something, having a record mm-hmm. of having you know gotten legislation through, or having been an executive, uh, a sort of significant executive, be a governor of a state or mayor of a large city or something. Um, you know, that's a little bit different than just sort of you know being a body in a seat right um and so i think you know i would argue for that being uh, an important but there's ways to make that substantive um experience while being in congress right i mean it's not that you have to sure. have executive you could totally be right. in congress i mean so i thought for example that you know john mccain whatever other issues there may have been with him clearly was cleared that bar right i mean he had, sure. he'd worked with both sides of the aisle he had mm-hmm. gotten some very major legislation passed um, Bob Dole is another example. I mean, he was Senate Majority Leader, sure. right? I mean, he knew how to work with people and to get bills through Congress. So that, yeah, they, these were people who had never served in executive roles, but who had done significant things legislatively. Mm-hmm. Okay. So governmental experience, is there something else that we feel like uh, is a good job qualification for president? Uh, I mean, I think one of the things that a lot of times people are, are looking for is somebody who can, somebody who can, has, has a larger vision. Mm-hmm. And in, and in many yeah. ways, you know, I think you know somebody somebody who has big sort of sort of big goals because you know if we know something about the presidency, huge goals, the yeah, biggest huge goals, goals. yeah, the, yeah, <laughs> right. But if you know, if, as 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 we know from the president, you know, once once we look at the president, um, they do have you know fairly significant powers, but oftentimes those powers um, are difficult to wield, and mm-hmm. you can only do so much with it. And sort of the the biggest power that the president has is the power to persuade and the power to sort of get people to sort of come on board with what they with what they want to do. And so in some ways, I think, you know, finding finding somebody who actually has the ability to sort of give a vision in that way is is uh, is, is, is extremely mm-hmm. important when we're thinking about who, who we want. Mm-hmm. That's a big one for me when I think about the the sort of the presidents that I sort of look back on and think, you know, that 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 those are sort of my kind of favorite mm-hmm. presidential moments and favorite mm-hmm. presidents are people who tend to um, uh, tend to have have that vision and, and tend to sort mm-hmm. of mobilize not only those people in politics, but mobilize the, the populace. Um, mm-hmm. But I would say that's not enough. Like, like right. if it's just right. that, like there's there's lots of people who can you know, who can do that part. And that's mm-hmm. where we sometimes get, um, you know, you get weird crossovers. Mm-hmm. So that's where I think right. Andy's point's really important is, is I think to me that that is a fundamental, that to me it's almost the most important thing. But if you don't have what Andy's right. talking about, then out. I'm not real interested because, because right. I think you sure. need, yeah, yeah. Right now, I mean, I'd argue our current president, for example, is a good example of this, right? His ability to cast a vision was very good. I mean, his, his 2004 you know, Democratic Convention speech about sort of we're not, a red America or a blue America or the United States of America. And then, you know, sort of this, yes, we can narrative. I mean, it was, you know, it was very powerful and it really, people found it very attractive, but then his ability to actually sort of unify the country when he got in was much less in part because he'd never actually, um, you know, had a sort of really substantive record of leadership. And so um, he struggled once he got in there to actually move from vision casting to actually sort of carrying out the vision. Um, And so I think, I mean, I agree with Mitchell. I think that's an important component, but ideally you'd have both. (laughs) 
I'll throw in on the end here. I, I agree with both of what you, what all three of you have just said here, that ex- certain kinds of governance experience, executive governance experience is really important. A certain ability to cast a vision and communicate that vision mm-hmm. as well as carry it out is really important. And I would add to that, and of course, you, you, I keep coming back to personality, but I think temperament and mm-hmm. personality is very important Agreed. too. I think a certain kind of personality tends to perform better as president mm-hmm. um, and I think, and, and tends to be... Uh, to, to complement that ability right. to be an executive govern in governance and to to have a good vision too, and um, I, but what I find is interesting is what none of us said. And we're sitting here in the middle of Bethel University, a evangelical Christian institution. None of us said that this person needs to be a Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not. I don't think. I don't. I don't want to dive real deeply into that right now. But if you're interested in that topic, uh, that's what we're going to be talking about in the library next week. So mm-hmm. uh, worth coming into check wow, that out. Wow, a good like inline plug. I like that. Nice like that? Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> I need to say because we talked about sort of being transparent and you know not not uh, withholding and, and disclosing things. That do you have, do you have I pneumonia? Have, no, I but I have a meeting to go to, so I've been slipping out at the end of these podcasts. So I'm going to do that right now. So and you're going to be transparent about this. Yeah, time. everybody who just sort of noticed that I would drop out at the end of these, like I just didn't say much. <laughs> that's because I'm leaving to go to a meeting. <laughs> They've so. all been assuming you're narcoleptic and that's you right. fall asleep partway through <laughs> listening to us. Bye, Sam. So. Um, now that now that the historian's leaving, we can dive into the really nerdy <laughs> yeah. political stuff. Shoot, and, no more history. <laughs> uh, no, um, let's let's run the numbers, gents. All right, um, all right. So the numbers, the, let's let's start with polls. Um, Andy, you were saying as you came in here, the polls are tightening even further than before. Yes, they are. So the um, real clear politics average, which I find that's a nice sort of um, place that brings together all these different polls and is pretty even handed about it. Um, has it down to a, Hillary's got a 1.8 lead in the head-to-head, 1.1 today in um, the three-way or the four-way uh, race. Sorry. So, um, yeah, it's definitely very tight. Um, you know, the, the number of prominent swing states are kind of neck and neck, and in you know some cases Trump has a small lead, Hillary has the other, but has the lead in some others, but it's within the margin of error. So it's a it's very tight. Um, this race is, you know, whether it's the missteps by Hillary Clinton in the last uh, week, both the the pneumonia thing we've already talked about and her basket of deplorables comment that we have not yet oh, talked the about. Gaffes. Um, you know, whether it's those things or just sort of the natural tendency of the race, it's definitely tightening. Sure. And this and for perspective, uh, Hillary, it's a one point eight lead on average right. for Hillary right now. Um, at the end of the Democratic Convention, uh, what two months ago? About uh, a month ago. Yeah, a month and a half ago. A month ago. Yeah. Um, she had about a six-point lead. Right. Um, so, yeah. six-point lead is a pretty huge lead. Most people thought that that would come back down to earth. That right. most candidates get an election bump after the election in terms of their polling numbers. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. she settled into sort of a four, three, four-point lead, and so one point eight is a uh, is an erosion of about half right. of the lead that she'd constructed yep. uh, in sort of a, a, a realistic sense. Right. And. Um, well, gentlemen, do you want to talk about some gaffes? I feel like if, if sure. Sam was still here, we'd play some audio clips of gaffes. Um, <laughs> but we have uh, yeah, Hillary Clinton is not the first nor the last candidate nope. to uh, to say something that has been repeated and repeated and repeated by the other side. Um, mm-hmm. This basket, she she referred to half of uh, Donald Trump's supporters as a basket of deplorables, and she wanted to elucidate what that means: <laughs> uh, racists, misogynists, right. um, homophobes, etc. How much do gaffes matter? Well, before we get into that, I just wanted sure. to note one other thing, though, uh, and that is there, there's been some pushback, I think, in actually in calling that a gaffe, um, just in the fact that a number of uh, a number of people have been pointing out that, according to 
there, there's some polling data out there that actually uh, looks like there's there's something to what she said. Uh, those oh. who support Trump actually are much more likely to have to say, for example, that African Americans are more violent or more criminal or mm-hmm. are lazier sure. or things like that. And so, if you look at the polling data, she's actually not completely off. Now, it's not quite half, but it's close. It's uh, mm-hmm. up in the upper forty percent that are that are that uh, that hold these views of people who are supporting Donald Trump. People who are supporting right, Donald yes. Trump, right. as opposed to people who support um, the other Republican. Republican candidates and uh, Hillary Clinton, and so you know, so there actually mm-hmm. is a notable uh, difference between the between the kinds of people who seem to be uh, supporting these supporting these candidates. And so, uh, on the one hand, is it a gaffe because you know, uh, you know, there there are people who hold those same views who support Hillary Clinton, mm-hmm. um, just in smaller numbers, maybe. But you know, mm-hmm. it's not like it's not like it was completely, uh, you know, that she was completely wrong. Well, right, and I think, and I, I would argue that the essence of a gaffe is not necessarily about factual error, um, because it's it's also about so what is a good idea to say, right, and to be, go on record saying. So, for example, I mean, the other the gaffe that this prominently brings to mind is Mitt Romney's forty seven percent remark right. four years ago, which, which also wasn't which he did privately, but was recorded, which he did privately, which was recorded, and much. I mean, a similar context, similar, right? Similar I mean, Hillary's sure. also speaking to a sort of group of very partisan people, much as Romney was four years ago. And, you know, and they're making this case to people that they deeply agree with them, but then it kind of goes viral, right? So, um, you know, in Romney's case, too, I mean, it's not in one sense like he was completely wrong. I mean, there are a lot of people in this country who don't pay, pay taxes. And could it influence their, their you know, their votes in particular ways? Sure, it's possible, right? I mean, I don't, I don't deny that possibility. But it was an extremely unwise thing to say. And I would argue the same is true with Hillary. I mean, even if this is true, right, even if it's true that, that you know, there's these people who are supporting Donald Trump who are, have these views, and I... I think Mitchell's right that empirically that's true. I'm just still not convinced it was a good idea to say because it just, again, the problem is not really the gaffe itself. I mean, like, you're, you're attacking people who aren't going to vote for you anyway, right? Mm-hmm. But the problem is it feeds a narrative again about Hillary Clinton, which is that she's an elitist, that she looks down on average Americans, she does not understand them, right? Um, and it, it to me, it just sort of reinforces that narrative, and that's, that is a problem for her. I mean, this is, again, the person who, after, you know, she and her husband left office in 2001, talked about what a financial crisis they were in. And, wow, it's just so hard to sort of battle our way out of that. And it's like, you know, it just it, which demonstrates sort of this fundamental disconnect with reality. I mean, when you have, you know, two people in a marriage relationship, both of whom can go give speeches for six figures. Right. I mean, your financial crisis, however bad, is not that bad. Right. I mean, just go you know, schedule yourself for 10 speeches and life is good again. Right. So, <laughs> I mean, it's. You know, there, there's just that disconnect between her and the average American, and this also feels like that. I mean, because she, she's running to be president of all the people, including the basket of deplorables. Sure. And so this, in that sense, I think is a problem. Well, and, and it's, it's a problem in terms of how she's pitching herself, and kind of comes back to this idea that I would say Hillary Clinton is running as a traditional presidential candidate. Donald Trump is not running right. as a traditional right. presidential candidate. I think because of some of his policy choices, Gary Johnson is not running as a traditional presidential <laughs> candidate either. Um, but uh, Gary Johnson runs his own way. Well, yeah. And uh, maybe more on that in a second. Um, but uh, um, because she's running as a traditional candidate, the expectation on her, maybe the standard we've applied to go to that point, mm-hmm. is that she will try to be relatable to especially middle-class Americans, if not right. average Americans, right. whatever average means. Um, Donald Trump is um, does not attempt to be relatable in that sense. Right. Um, in fact, he projects how he is different. He is better. He is wealthier. He is... Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't hide nor apologize for the fact that he places himself in the upper tenth of one percent of Americans, right? right. Of, in, in terms of his wealth, 
And so in a sense, this is, again, sort of that different standard sort of thing. Um, Hillary Clinton is uh, – we look uh, – we look skeptical when she talks mm-hmm. about financial problems and is, you know, and right. is, is a millionaire. Um, right. Donald Trump, if he complained about his finances, um, it's incomprehensible because, right. he's a, you know, we don't know how much money he has because he has <laughs> his tax returns. Right. We think and he projects the fact that he's very, very wealthy and, and, and he's not creating that same kind of standard. Mm-hmm. I think that's fair. Um I did have on our agenda to talk about whether Gary Johnson was going to get in the polls. And then we looked at his real clear politics averages and he's hovering right around 8 percent. Um, he needs to be at 15 to get in the polls. Does he have a the shot? Debates, the debates. Or debates, I'm sorry. Sorry, <laughs> needs to be excuse me. Eight percent in the, your, uh, needs to be 15% in the polls to be in the debates. <laughs> right. Thank you very right. much. He, there's, there's five polls uh, that he has to average 15% in to get into the debates. Does he have a shot? I'm going to go with no unless. And so my no unless is I don't think he gets in based on the polls. I just don't see him getting yeah, – I haven't even seen a single poll where he gets to 15% let alone a, an average. And, and he hasn't really, I mean, I think there was an opportunity for Gary Johnson, but he hasn't run a brilliant campaign, to put it mildly. So I, I don't really think he gets in unless, and my unless is if Trump decides to try to, this game, right? So one option for Trump that I actually think, I mean, if, if, you know, if Trump was thinking clearly about this, I think this would actually be a really good option for him, um, would be to push for the inclusion of Johnson and even Stein, right? Um, and to say, we want, I want these people in the debate. The powerful people are trying to keep them out. I'm only going to debate Hillary Clinton if... You put these other two people on there so Americans can hear this. I think this would actually be could useful for Could he make that happen? Well, he could, he could make it – I mean, he could insist on it and say either the, either the, we, the, the four of us do it. is a nonpartisan – Right. Posi- but, he, but he could refuse to debate. Right. He could say, I'm only debating Hillary Clinton if these other two people are in. And then Hillary – it would be kind of in Hillary's court, right? So then Hillary would, would have be, a choice but of – But would it though? I mean, I'm not sure that would be in Hillary's court. I mean, this is a – this the, the debate commission is, is jointly – Run well, by then he doesn't debate, right? I mean, like, then he, if he refuses, he refuses. And we know that Trump will, at times, refuse to debate. I mean, he's done this before, right? Sure. So, so I, I mean, I, I think he could try to play that. I don't know how the debate commission would handle it. Um, but, you know, they could, I mean, technically, they could bypass the debate commission. There's no law that says they have to abide by the debate commission or even have debates, right? So Good point. they could schedule private debates um, on the same days that the debate commission was planning or on other days that don't conflict with NFL games, right, um, <laughs> to Trump's preference. But, but he could try to insist on that, which would make him look good. It would make him look like I'm battling for the common people, for Americans to hear more perspectives. And practically for him, it would mean he, had, he would have to talk a lot less. Um, and he hasn't really shown an ability to sort of explain policy well in debates. So I think mm-hmm. less is more for him. Like, I, mean, I, I, don't, I just don't see him doing really well in a one-on-one. Um, but I think that's Johnson and Stein's only chance of getting in this debate is if Trump were to sort of make a play like that. Hillary has absolutely no motivation to make a play like that. I think the third party candidates right now are hurting her more than him. Yes, that's um, true. And so it's, uh, you know, she, she wants a head to head. So that's I think that's really their only chance. Otherwise, we're going to be just two people. OK. Well, more tune on that. I think we'll pick up more t- more stories on Johnson and Stein if his poll numbers go up yeah um and after his aleppo comment i just i don't know i don't see it um johnson is just you know he's the kind of candidate who in theory could have won a lot of votes there he and his running mate are well qualified in the sense of that executive experience we talked about earlier but they're just not very inspiring especially johnson i just don't see him catching fire but we'll see that could be wrong and as usual i mean you know third 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 parties in america have a very bad have I've never taken off, primarily because we right. have the first-past-the-post um, sure. electoral system where, you know, basically, <clears throat> if you aren't voting for one of the two candidates that actually has a shot, you are, uh, in essence, wasting your vote. Duverger's Law. Yeah. Do you want to explain Duverger's Law? Mitchell wants to explain Duverger's Law. <laughs> I can, though. 
Uh, it essentially says that uh, if you once 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 you have an electoral system that only elects one person per district or per um, electoral area, you will only get two parties. That's the outcome, and the reason for that is just is simply uh, just a little bit of. Um, rational uh, incentive, right? You think about what can I do with my single vote for one person, right. and once you once you have an individual who's thinking about that, you can either, if you have say three candidates, say it was Trump, Clinton, and Johnson, and you think, okay, um, Johnson is way down in the polls; he has no chance of winning. And <clears throat> between Trump and Clinton and Johnson, who is my if Johnson is my first choice, who's my second choice? Who is the person that I would most like to see? Um, that's not the other person, and you have to decide, you know, where is my vote actually going to count? Is my vote going to count voting for Johnson, who has no chance of winning, or is my vote going to count for my second choice, you know, voting for Donald Trump, say, for example, um, to try mm-hmm. to defeat Hillary Clinton? And, of course, that rational calculation is going to play out where you're always going to say, well, I may as well vote for my second choice um, right. and not vote for my uh, first choice. And so basically everybody's doing that all the time. And so what that results in, if you have a first-past-the-post, in other words, first person to get uh, plurality of the votes – gets the office, um, then you're always going to basically be driven to two parties, and it's and you basically can't escape that. That's a really nice summary. I, I agree. And I think I mean, the only thing that might change that in this election in terms of you know, us getting a thir- larger third-party vote is if, if people decide both major party candidates are unacceptable. Because they have such high negatives, that could happen. And so you could have people who normally would say, yeah, I'm not a big fan of either of them, but I'm more Republican than Democrat, or I'm more Democrat than Republican, I'm going to vote for our party's candidate. I think you could have more of those people saying this time, I just don't care. Like people disaffected Republicans <laughs> who, you know, voted for other people and said Trump is an unacceptable representative of my views or Bernie Sanders supporters who just cannot bring themselves to vote for Hillary Clinton. So, um, you know, that could happen this time. But in general, I think Mitchell's explanation is spot on. And if you want a really nice mm-hmm. understanding of this, uh, listeners, uh, if you go on YouTube, there's this a guy named C. I always get his initials wrong. CGP. CPG Gray. CPG. I can never remember which one goes first, the P or the G. CPG Gray. Um, it does this with Animal Kingdom and explains why the first past the post system always ends up in a two party system. And it's great. Yeah. And it's done with animals. It's quite entertaining. So <laughs> go on there and watch that if you want to um, get some visuals to what Mitchell was just explaining. Um, so that, that, I, I agree, Mitch. That was a really good summary of Diverger's Law. Uh, I'm, but I'm going to need to ask the question behind that Do voters actually think that way? Do uh, to, to be cynical, what you just summarized was: as a voter, I walk in the voting booth and think, "Okay, who is my worst outcome for the <laughs> for the election?" And then I vote for the person best like most likely to defeat that person. So if I if Trump is my worst outcome, I vote for Clinton. If Clinton is my worst outcome, I vote mm-hmm. for Trump. And and for, to, to to Andy's point, if I can't decide who's worse, Trump or Clinton, they're both terrible, terrible options. Maybe then I'll vote for Johnson, even though I right. know he has a very slim chance of winning. Mm-hmm. I mean, in but that do, case, it's, but do voters really think that way? Yes, I would say absolutely, and I'll go with the super scientific method of um, using my Facebook newsfeed, right? But, <laughs> there um, we go. So, I mean, if you think, if I think about sort of the the big arguments that people are making for Trump or for Clinton on my um, feed, it is not really in most instances. I mean, I would say probably ninety percent of instances, it's not a positive argument about the greatness of Trump or the greatness of Hillary Clinton. It is. The other candidate is truly terrible, right? If you vote for Hillary Clinton as a conservative, um, you know, she will appoint justices to the Supreme Court. They will be awful. Ergo, you must vote for Trump, even though he's not really conservative. And we don't know what kind of justices he'll appoint anyway. Um, And the same thing on the other side, right? I mean, Trump is temperamentally unsuited to be president. You can't trust this man with the nuclear codes. So you've got to vote for Hillary Clinton, even though, you know, she's always hiding stuff and, you know, has her own private server. And, you know, we can't really trust her. But 
you know, she she won't nuke anyone, right? Um, so it's it's that kind of argument. I and I think yeah, I think ultimately that is actually pretty convincing. I am really curious about this election to see how many people bail on this and, and just say third party because neither of them is acceptable. My guess is it'll be fewer than it looks like right now, but it'll still be not insignificant. I think I think part of the reason it's going to be fewer too is we is we haven't seen the debates yet and we right. haven't seen the final right. uh, push by either of the candidates in their campaigns. You know, mm-hmm. right. the campaign money and the campaign apparatus is still in some ways getting revved up. I mean, it's yep. sure it's we're you know we haven't seen the the final real ad pushes. Yeah, and the other thing is we also haven't had that late season surprise right, which usually ends up coming in. I mean, I think of the last two elections, right? I mean. In 2008, you get the financial collapse in September, right? Um, that really shifts it. I mean, up to that point, it was neck and neck between McCain and Obama, mm-hmm. and Obama's lead just widened um, and stayed wide after that, right? Um, and then in 2012, it was pretty close. It was tightening, and then you get the hurricane right before the election. Obama goes to New Jersey, looks really presidential, and you know that that certainly helped him. Uh, I don't know if it made the difference. I think he had enough organization that he probably wins that was, election anyway. But that, yeah. but he it certainly solidified his lead that people yeah. got to look at the president looking very presidential and sort of, you know, caring for all Americans um, and, you know, with his arm around the Republican governor of New Jersey. Right. And, you know, it, it, it certainly helps. So there's there's also that sort of surprise factor that could come um, I, I get. Oh, go ahead. Mitch. So I, I'll if I, if I can just kind of push back on, on Andy a little bit, and I think get at what Chris was saying here, um, mm-hmm. and that is, on, on the one hand, I completely agree. Obviously, you know, um, you, you, you do see a lot of people who are rationally thinking, but I think if you sort of take a step back from that, and that is, how do they get their initial um, uh, sort of tendencies? Like, sure. how do you, sure. how do people actually decide? You know, on the one hand, it's like, you look and you say, okay, I'm somebody who leans towards... <clears throat> you know, whatever X policy positions. Right. Um, but how do people actually arrive at those and how do people actually get there? And I think that's where things get much murkier mm-hmm. and more yeah. difficult yeah. For, for, for us to look at, you know, because, for example, you have sort of large demographic things that obviously influence people, like mm-hmm. where you fall, um, you know, in terms of your income. You know, obviously, if you are making less money, you're more likely to vote for Democrats. If you're making more money, you're more likely to vote for Republicans. But that doesn't hold completely. You know, as political mm-hmm. scientists, right. you know, we look at all these different trends and, you know, uh, you know, when I when I teach elections, you know, one of the things that that students I think get frustrated with is the fact that there's like nine or ten different things that sort right. of guide how people end up voting, and none of them are actually you know sort of final. It's not, not like we can say, yeah. oh, it's income, or you know, another thing we can look at is race, and we can say, well, here's you know, here's how different demographic groups tend to vote. But again, even there, I mean, it's you know, there's there's difference. Or if you look at, you know, if you sort of come down a little bit further, you can sort of say, well, what about party ID? And right. party mm-hmm. ID is obviously the best predictor. But even mm-hmm. there, when political I mean, scientists say party ID, we mean are you Democrat or are you Republican? Yeah. Right. And so, and um, but even even with party ID, I mean, that's not a hundred percent. I mean, you look right. at that, sure. and there's a, you know a decent amount of variation um, right. even within that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and of course, party ID just begs the question of how did they get into that party anyway, right? right? Exactly, I mean, yeah. which is sort of a, in some ways a proxy for the others. Yeah, I no, I agree with that. I think that um, you know that the question of how they arrive there is a different one. And like even like the example you bring up, income is so complicated. Right? On the one hand, you'd expect rich people to vote Republican, and that's the the narrative you get in the in the um, press because you know the, the tax policies of Republicans favor them more. But on the other hand, right now, I mean, you know, I just one of my quite liberal friends posted on Facebook a story 
about how the one percent, right, the top income earners, are the most united behind a single candidate in this election than they've been in any election since 1896, when the the gold standard was sort of the issue. And they're united behind not Donald Trump, but Hillary Clinton, right, because they they view her as a more certain choice. And on the other hand, Trump is very more prominently like keep, more drawing, likely to keep the market stable. Was that you're right? More likely to keep the market stable. Exactly right. And and Trump, on the other hand, is drawing from a lot of sort of poor working class whites, right? Even though, as Chris pointed out earlier, I mean, he's he's running very explicitly as like I'm very very rich, right? I am not really one of you, but I somehow understand you. And that's, you know, he's selling that. So it's, it's really, yeah, it's hard to point to any one factor. Um, but I, I just think this election in particular is going to be more a, a vote against the candidate you fear more than a positive vote for a candidate that you really love. Except, you know, with some with some exceptions, certainly there are going to be people who are enthused about each of these candidates. But I just don't find a lot of them right now. Or maybe my friends are just weird. That's possible, too. <laughs> Well, we're your friends, Andy, and we're weird, so that kind of that, I know, out. exactly. Yeah. I'm kind of weird, so that, you know, it would fit. Um, well, I think this corresponds to some things that I think is true about the election, too. I think Diverger's law and voting against the candidate you'd like the least matters a lot. Um, I think Mitch is right. How we get to those preferences yep. first is, uh, if you want to read a really depressing book in American politics, read a uh, book that's about 60 years old now called The American Voter uh, <laughs> by Phil Converse and a bunch of other folks. And... Uh, Converse basically argues that most of us inherit our political party from our parents, and if it doesn't, if it's not our parents, it's our demographic factors. It's the it's the it's the ethnic groups that we belong to, it's uh, larger, broader structural forces, it's our income demographics, other right. kinds of things. Very few of us, nearly none of us, ever sort of just sit down and really think through the issues, and then come to some kind of uh, informed decision on our political party preferences. Mm-hmm. But once we have those political party preferences. We do everything we can to reinforce them. Uh, we right. think more positively about the candidates we like. We think more negatively about the candidates that don't correspond with our values. Right. And we look for the things to dislike about the candidate we don't like. Mm-hmm. And we Absolutely. look for, you know, we, and this is called motivated reasoning. Yep. And we work that we, we, we're very good at, at, at seeing the positives and, and, and the, those we like and seeing the negatives and those we don't. Yeah, and that way, I mean, party right. becomes almost a, uh, like religion in that way. Very much so. It does. Very yeah. much so. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. And, uh, and 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 frequently in this, in, perhaps in this in this election, a religion without a savior. Um, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, I think that's true. So uh, a lot of that then becomes part of our, you know, how we how we have voting heuristics or how we have voting uh, sort of shortcuts right. that allow us to um, um, to cast our votes. And I th- um, political scientists debate and differ on how people actually accumulate information. Those who subscribe heavily to the ideas of motivated reasoning suggest we don't really do a good job at all of remembering specific pieces of information. So by the time mm-hmm. we get to the voting booth, most people aren't going to be thinking about Hillary Clinton's pneumonia. Right. Or even about the fact that she's not trustworthy or not. Rather, they're just going to be thinking about, I don't think I like her. Yeah. Because yeah. all of this boils down into just a general affective feeling, just a general mm-hmm. like, dislike. Right. And at the end of the day, we'll cast a vote on who we like, or we'll cast a vote against who we like the least. Right. And that's, and that's where those things can... I think all the, the you know the the way she handles the pneumonia, the way she handles her email scandals, right? The way that you know the, the kind of great things that Donald Trump says about people, right? I mean, all those can feed into how you like. But you're right; you're not going to stand in the voting booth thinking about sort of like well the emails and the pneumonia handling and the tax policies, right? It's a more of a general sense. Yeah. All this um, is, but same. all that feeds in to give you information about that create helps to create that general sense. Yeah. Um, but I think you're you're you know again to, to Mitch's point, I mean the, the partisan leanings do much more right and so that mm-hmm. you're going to interpret donald trump's you know the the things he says about people very differently if you lean republican than if you lean democrat and you're going to interpret you know the way hillary clinton's handled these things very differently if you lean democrat sure. than if you lean republican so the good news out of this is um these gaffes 
don't matter very much. Mitt yeah, Romney's forty seven percent gaff, uh, Hillary Clinton's basket deplorables, right. whether it's a gaff or not. They just they just don't matter that much. No. Uh, people who already didn't like these candidates, it just tips a little bit more on the I didn't like him already kind yep. of scale. People who already liked him have lots of good ways of figuring out to explain exactly why this isn't this isn't a gaff or this isn't a big deal. Yep. And I think uh, if you're you know if you're worried about your presidential candidate of choice flubbing up, um, don't worry. It doesn't have that much of an impact. Yep. They both already flubbed, and here they are. <laughs> Well, gentlemen, uh, we need to sign off for now because um, we have classes to teach and we have things to do. So uh, thank you for joining us for another day. And uh, we'll join you on Tuesday, uh, an early podcast next week uh, in the library. So uh, on behalf of my colleagues in the political science department, this is Chris Moore saying go Royals. Go Royals.